God is sovereign. That means he has dominion over all his creation. God rules the universe. But within the universe, God has always had a kingdom. His own realm of influence where his ways and his wisdom have been put on display. From the time of Moses until the establishment of the church, God's kingdom was the nation Israel. He brought the Hebrews out of Egypt. God gave them the land, the law. He gave them promises of blessings and curses. This was to be a physical kingdom. The land was literal. It had borders. It had natural resources. God's law employed human government, a king, even a throne. And God's blessings and curses were material. The health and wealth that God promised wasn't just spiritual, it was physical. Yet Israel failed to be God's earthly kingdom. So God sent his son, the king himself, to birth a spiritual kingdom. Jesus established a new covenant with us. In essence, God's kingdom went underground with Jesus and in the church. God's kingdom now reigns in human hearts. Today, through his Holy Spirit, God reigns in our spirit and in our love for one another. The blessings of God's kingdom are now spiritual. They're all found in Christ. This is why the Old Testament laws no longer apply to Christians today. We're part of a different kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. But one day, our prayers will be answered. God's kingdom will come on earth even as it is in heaven. For the moment, God has no earthly kingdom, not the church, certainly not the United States, not even the Tea Party. Yet Jesus is going to return one day to reestablish his throne, a political throne, his kingdom, an earthly kingdom, and his blessings, even material blessings for his people. And it is the prophet Jeremiah who documented both the Hebrews' fatal failure and the hope of a new covenant. For 860 years, God had been patient, but Judah's persistent idolatry became her downfall. And God raised up a group of people in the east, the Chaldeans, a Babylonian army to bring judgment against Judah. In three invasions, Babylon defeated the nation, deported the Jews, and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. To kind of recap where we've been, in 605 B.C., the Babylonian general Nebuchadnezzar subjugated Judah and made King Jehoiakim his vassal. In 597 B.C., the Babylonians returned to deal with the rebellion of Jehoiakim's son, King Jeconiah. He and other Jewish nobles were taken back to Babylon as exiles. And then in 586 B.C., tired of their persistent rebellion, Nebuchadnezzar came with his army. He destroyed Jerusalem. He burned the temple to the ground, and he took many of the Jews captive back to Babylon, including the final Jewish king, Zedekiah. You remember Nebuchadnezzar, he poked out the king's eyes and took him as a prisoner to Babylon. Throughout this last 20 years of their history, a lone voice courageously warned the nation of God's judgment. And that voice was of the prophet Jeremiah. 
After the fall of Jerusalem, the Babylonians dealt graciously with Jeremiah. He stayed with his people. Three groups of Jews were left in the land, the poor, a few former military folk, and some returning refugees. But tragically, almost immediately, the Babylonian-appointed governor, Gedaliah, he was assassinated. The remaining Jews rightly feared a reprisal from the Babylonians, and they decided to relocate to Egypt. It was the irony of all ironies. This triumphant people who had left Egypt were now returning, disgraced and defeated. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 42. Now all the captains of the forces, Johanan the son of Kareah, Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Please let our petition be acceptable to you, and pray for us to the Lord your God for all this remnant, since we are left but a few of many, as you can see, that the Lord your God may show us the way in which we should walk and the thing that we should do. Now remember, Jeremiah had been offered a lavish post in Babylon. He had turned it down, though, in order to remain with his people in the land. And it was a good thing. For now the Jews, they need God's help. The remnant is reeling. They're frightened. The embers of the fallen city are still smoking when the governor, chosen by Nebuchadnezzar himself, gets murdered. What are they to do now? Should the Jews flee to Egypt? Should they stay in the land? What should they do? They come to Jeremiah seeking God's help, which was a good thing. But here's what was sad. Note they ask him, pray for us to the Lord your God. Did you notice that? The Jews say he's not our God. Jeremiah, he's your God. They felt the separation with God that their sin had caused. You know, sin separates us from God. It creates a separation, an alienation. But then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard, indeed, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your words. And it shall be that whatever the Lord answers you, I will declare it to you. I will keep nothing back from you. And what a loving, merciful thing for Jeremiah to say in response. He doesn't say, okay, I'll pray to the Lord my God. No, that's not what he says. He says, I will pray to the Lord your God. They felt the guilt of their sin. They realized they didn't deserve to call God their Lord. But God doesn't treat us according to how we feel or what we deserve. He handles us with grace. That's unmerited favor. That's love. That's on the house. Despite your sins and failures, because of God's grace... He is still your God. This was the basis of the new covenant that God had made with Jeremiah in chapter 31. And this is how God treats those of us who are in Christ. Did you know His grace is stronger than our sin, our guilt? This is why Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 39, Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, even our own sin and failures. And so they said to Jeremiah, let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us. If we do not do according to everything which the Lord your God sends us by you, 
whether it is pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. And here is a noble confession that you and I should emulate. Are we willing to obey the Lord whether what he asks of us is pleasing or displeasing? Oh, it's easy to obey God when what he asks is something that we would enjoy doing. When it's pleasing to us, Sandy, take your church on a cruise and tour Greece. Yes, Lord, I'll be happy to do that. That's a pleasing thing to do. But what if he says, Sandy, fast for three days and help a homeless family pay the deposit on their apartment? Whoa, Nellie, that's an entirely different matter. You see, the truth is, selected obedience is not obedience at all. It's merely convenience. Real obedience follows God's instructions, whether it's pleasing or displeasing. Verse 7, and it happened after 10 days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And I love this verse because it shatters a lot of our misconceptions about prayer. So often we pray. And because we expect an immediate answer, we misrepresent or misinterpret God's will for our lives. We mishear what he's saying to us. Hey, whenever you pray, be prepared to wait for God to answer. Sometimes it takes 10 days, like it did Jeremiah here. Sometimes it takes 10 months. Some people have been waiting on an answer to prayer for 10 years. You remember Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, Everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. But literally, the Greek text reads, Everyone who keeps on asking receives, and he who keeps on seeking finds, and to him who keeps on knocking it will be opened. You see, God is a rewarder of a persistent prayer. And it's not because his arm has to be twisted. Don't misunderstand. No, it's that we need to become humble. Persistent prayer doesn't overcome God's reluctance. It proves our dependence. Now, once God had spoken to Jeremiah, then he called Johanan, the son of Korea, who after the governor's assassination, apparently became the de facto leader. And all the captains of the forces which were with him, and all the people from the least even to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition before him. If you will still remain in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down, and I will plant you and not pluck you up. Here was their answer. If you remain in this land, going to Egypt is a bad idea. You need to stay put. God's blessings on them were contingent to them remaining where they were. He says, for I relent concerning the disaster that I have brought upon you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid. Do not be afraid of him, says the Lord. For I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. And I will show you mercy that he may have mercy on you and cause you to return to your own land. How many times does fear cause us to make bad decisions? How many times do our fears cause us to... Go against the will of God. Here, they were afraid of what Babylon might do to them. The Lord says, don't be afraid. 
trust in me, if they obey God, if they stay in the land, rather than tear them down, God will build them up. But if you say, we will not dwell in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God, saying, no, but we will go to the land of Egypt, where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor be hungry for bread, and there we will dwell. Then hear now the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you wholly set your faces to enter Egypt and go to dwell there, then it shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. The famine of which you were afraid shall follow close after you there in Egypt, and there you shall die. So shall it be with all the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to dwell there. They shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. And none of them shall remain or escape from the disaster that I will bring upon them. To obey God for these Jews was to stay put. They were to remain home. Once there was a police officer. He noticed a little boy who was walking around the block, just circling the block. He had walked the sidewalk six or seven times. The officer approached him and said, son, what are you doing? The little guy said, I'm running away from home. The policeman said, well, you're not getting very far. That's when the little guy said, you're right, but my mom says I can't cross the street. (laughs) Obedience kept him close to home, as it will us. The key to the Christian life is to what? It's to stay put. It's to abide in Christ. It's to remain home. It's to trust in Jesus. It's not to go off and get distracted by the world and the things of the world, but it's to stay put. It's to trust the Lord. Jude 21, I love the verse. It says, keep yourselves in the love of God. God loves you. He wants to bless you, but he's not going to chase you down to give give you his blessings. You've got to keep yourself in the love of God. Know you belong to Christ. Walk in that assurance. Never turn your back on that relationship. Keep Jesus at the forefront of your attention and your direction. And just as we are called to live in Christ, God called these Jews to live in the land that he had promised them. If they trust God by remaining in the land, he would bless them. But if they don't, All the hardship that they had feared from the Babylonians will come upon them in Egypt. Verse 18. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my fury have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so will my fury be poured out on you when you enter Egypt. And you shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach. And you shall see this place no more. The Lord has said concerning you, O remnant of Judah, Do not go to Egypt. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day. Now somehow, Jeremiah had sensed that that earlier confession, that noble confession that they had made back in verse 6, that it had been a pretense. That it had really just been an act of hypocrisy. For they had no intention of obeying the Lord if it was displeasing to them. And thus Jeremiah tells them, For you were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and according to all that the Lord your God says. So declare to us, and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God or anything 
which he has sent you by me. Now therefore know certainly that you shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go to dwell. The Jews had feigned sincerity. See, what they really wanted was for God to rubber stamp their wishes. How many times is that our true motivation when we go to prayer? You know, we need to be direct with God, but we should never be directional with God. We should never try to push Him this way or that way. You know, we should go and seek His will for our lives, His will for our problem. Come to God with your own agenda, and you might miss His. Chapter 43 tells us. Now it happened when Jeremiah had stopped speaking to all the people, all the words of the Lord their God, for which the Lord their God had sent him to them, all these words, that Azariah the son of Hoshiah, Johanan the son of Kareah, and all the proud men spoke, saying to Jeremiah, You speak falsely. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, Do not go to Egypt to dwell there. How do you like these guys? I mean, they could have just walked away. Oh, we're not going to obey that. Instead, they deny that Jeremiah even speaks for God. Well, then why did they come to him in the first place? What they suggest in verse 3 is ludicrous. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us. And remember, Baruch was Jeremiah's assistant, his attache. Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may put us to death or carry us away captive to Babylon. And so they accuse Jeremiah of having been manipulated by his assistant Baruch. How foolish is that? Jeremiah is not going to be manipulated by some assistant. This man had stood undaunted before kings despite threats and torture and prison. He's not going to cower to his assistant. Verse 4, So Johanan, the son of Korea, all the captains of the forces and all the people who would not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to dwell in the land of Judah from all nations where they had been driven, men, women, children, the king's daughters, and every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain, that is the captain of the Babylonians, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah. So they went to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they went as far as Taphanes. And again, verse 7 is one of the saddest verses in all the scriptures. For nine centuries after God brought the Hebrews out of Egypt, now they're returning from where they started. They've come full circle. Moses would have rolled over in his grave. It's interesting, Jeremiah makes this trip with them as well. I'm sure Jeremiah knew that they would need his help. He was probably hoping for their repentance. So Jeremiah and Baruch, they make this journey with them. They end up in Tophanes, which was the capital of Egypt at the time. It was the site of the Pharaoh's palace. Tophanes was situated in the northeast corner of Egypt, which was the land of Goshen. Does that ring a bell to you? That was the same region 
where the Hebrews had lived for 400 years as slaves. Now they're right back where they started, to the very region. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Toppenes, saying, Take large stones in your hand and hide them in the sight of the men of Judah, in the clay in the brick courtyard, which is at the entrance to Pharaoh's house in Toppenes. And say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and bring Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne. Notice again, God calls this pagan king his servant. God used Nebuchadnezzar sovereignly to work his will and bring judgment on his people. And will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden. And he will spread his royal pavilion over them. When he comes, he shall strike the land of Egypt and deliver to death those appointed for death and to captivity those appointed for captivity and to the sword those appointed for the sword. The Jews were running to Egypt to escape the Chaldean king Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't realize that Egypt was next on Babylon's hit list. Jerusalem fell to Babylon in 586 B.C. History tells us that 18 years later, Babylon invaded Egypt and conquered the land of the Pharaohs. If they had stayed with the Jews, if they had stayed in Judah, they would have been safe. But because they refused, they end up slaughtered with the Egyptians by the Babylonians. Verse 12, I will kindle a fire in the houses of the gods of Egypt, And he shall burn them and carry them away captive. And he shall array himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd puts on his garment. And he shall go out from there in peace. He shall also break the sacred pillars of Beth Shemesh that are in the land of Egypt. And the houses of the gods of the Egyptians he shall burn with fire. These sacred pillars in Beth Shemesh, these were 90 foot high. They were dedicated to Ra, the Egyptian sun god. These pillars will be broken in Egypt's temples. Idolatrous temples will be burned. But God has more to say through Jeremiah chapter 44. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews who dwell in the land of Egypt, who dwell at Migdal, at Toppenes, at Noph, and in the country of Pathros, saying. Now originally, the Egyptian-bound Jews, they settled in Toppenes, which was the capital. The Greeks called it Daphne. They eventually, though, moved into the interior of Egypt. Noph was the ancient city of Memphis, which was the center of Egyptian idolatry. Pathros was even further south. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and on all the cities of Judah, and behold this day, They are a desolation, and no one dwells in them because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger, in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they did not know, they nor you nor your fathers. However, I have sent to you all my servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their wickedness and to burn no incense to other gods. So my fury and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah 
and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they are wasted and desolate as it is this day. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off from you man and woman, child and infant out of Judah, leaving none to remain, in that you provoke me to wrath with the works of your hands, burning incense to other gods in the land of Egypt, where you have gone to dwell, that you may cut yourselves off and be a curse and a reproach among all the nations of the earth. Why are you doing this, God says. The Jews who moved to Egypt started worshiping the gods of Egypt. How tragic. Didn't they learn? Don't they remember what happened in the streets of Jerusalem? The judgment that came upon them for this very sin, their idolatry? I'm sure we've all heard a history teacher say it in one of our classes. Those who refuse to learn from history are destined to repeat it. And this is what happened to the Jews. God judged them because of their idolatry, but now they're right back repeating the same sin. Verse 9. Have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, the wickedness of the kings of Judah, the wickedness of their wives, your own wickedness, the wickedness of your wives which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? Have you forgotten? They have not been humbled to this day, nor have they feared. They have not walked in my law or in my statutes that I set before you and your fathers. See, this was amazing. Jerusalem is now in ashes. Their friends are in Babylon. And these rebellious Jews have forgotten why. Don't waste God's discipline. When he works in our lives, when he shows us the error of our ways, take note. Pay attention. Don't make the same mistakes twice. Here, despite God's judgment, they still weren't humble. Despite God's judgment, they still refused to fear the Lord. They they had not learned the first lesson. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set my face against you for catastrophe and for cutting off all Judah. And I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to dwell there, and they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine. They shall die from the least to the greatest by the sword and by famine, and they shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach. I mean, people will walk by and will be amazed at how they had forgotten, how they'd been so naive and foolish. For I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence so that none of the remnant of Judah who have gone into the land of Egypt to dwell there shall escape or survive lest they return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return and dwell. For none shall return except those who escape. Now notice, some of the Jews did desire to return to Judah. He says that. But not everyone did. Not everyone made the effort. Some folks intend to follow Jesus, but they lack the faith to do so. There were three frogs sitting on a log. Two intended to jump off. How many were left on the log? Three. 
Because there's a big difference in doing and wanting to do. Some folks want to follow Jesus, but they don't. They get caught up. They get trapped. Understand, hell will be full of people with good intentions. Then all the men who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods, with all the women who stood by, a great multitude, and all the people who dwelt in the land of Egypt, in Pathros, answered Jeremiah, saying, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth, to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings and our princes, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. That's what got him in trouble to begin with. For then we had plenty of food, were well off, and saw no trouble. Are you kidding me? You've forgotten the bloodshed in the streets of Jerusalem already? The siege? 18 months behind the walls? It was so bad they resorted to cannibalism. Some of them ate their own kids. It was devastating. It was tragic. And they've already forgotten the consequences of their sin and their idolatry. Now they're pursuing idols in Egypt by paying homage, and here he quotes, the queen to the queen of heaven. This was the goddess that went by many names, appears in many, many cultures. This is the queen of heaven, the, the mother goddess, Astarte to the Hebrews, Ishtar to the Canaanites, Isis to the Egyptians, Diana to the Greeks, Artemis to the Romans, Semiramis to the Babylonians. To the pagans, she was the goddess of fertility. She controlled the rain and the seasons. And sadly, she's still around. There are some New Age folks who advocate worship of Mother Earth. Same thing, the goddess, the queen of heaven as they call her. And this title, queen of heaven, is also how Roman Catholics now refer to and talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Realize Jesus' mom is not the queen of heaven. She's a resident, I'm sure. She's a worshiper, no doubt. But she's nobody's queen. It's blasphemy to call Mary that. That's why I am still a protestant, a protestant. It's a pagan title with idolatrous implications to refer to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the queen of heaven. She is a servant of the king. She is not a queen. Verse 18. But since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. Now here's an example of revisionist history. For just the opposite was true. Idolatry was the reason that they had lost everything. The women also said, And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without our husband's permission? They were proud of it. These wives felt emboldened in their worship of the queen of heaven. You see, God expected them to live under their husband's authority. 
Whereas paganism encourages women to be autonomous and independent. And here these women are bragging about their defiance. The Bible's teaching on marriage is referred to by a long term, complementarianism. Complementarianism suggests that husbands and wives have different but complementary roles. And God has called husbands to lead and wives to support their leadership. Whereas paganism always advocates equalitarianism. That family authority is shared equally by both spouses. That there isn't one leader. Only the Bible upholds marriage as a picture of God and his people. This is why a husband should lead and a wife should let him. Why? Because marriage models our relationship with God. Whereas idolatry and false religion promote feminism. They distort and abandon the biblical roles. Realize, when God created mankind, he did so male and female. He created us with distinction. But paganism is all about oneness. It abhors the distinctions within creation. It abhors the distinction between the creator and the creation, between man and animal, between male and female. Paganism deifies nature. There is no difference. God is in all things. It puts animal rights on a par with human rights. And it blurs the differences between men and women. Paganism is, is androgynous. The, the point of paganism is God is in all and all is in God. It's the worship of oneness. In contrast, God created gender. And he has an order, a plan for the harmony of the sexes. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul gives instructions to the church. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. In the church and in the home, the man should lead and the wife should let him. And this is why a person's beliefs about gender roles is a great litmus test. For nothing is quicker, nothing is a quicker uh, indication of whether a person's thinking is biblical or pagan than this issue. The Bible supports these roles. Idolatry confuses them. Verse 20 tells us, Then Jeremiah spoke to all the people, the men, the women, and all the people who had given him that answer, saying, The incense that you burn in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your princes, and the people of the land... Did not the Lord remember them, and did it not come into his mind? So the Lord could no longer bear it because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which you committed. Understand, God has a heart. He gets grieved when we rebel against him and sin against him over and over and over again. He couldn't bear it anymore. Therefore, your land is a desolation, an astonishment, a curse, and without an inhabitant, as it is this day. Because you have burned incense and because you have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord or walked in his law, in his statutes, or in his testimonies, therefore this calamity has happened to you as, as at this day. In other words, Jeremiah reminds them of their history. Moreover, Jeremiah said to all the people and to all the women, Hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who are in the land of Egypt. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, You and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely keep our vows that we have made to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. You will surely keep your vows and perform your vows. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah, who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, The Lord God lives. Behold, I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end to them. Yet a small number who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah. And all the remnant of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt to dwell there shall know whose words will stand, mine or theirs. You can disagree with God. But in the end, know whose words will stand. His will. And this shall be a sign to you, says the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for adversity. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy who sought his life. Hophra's Greek name was Aprius. He died in an Egyptian civil war that is what led the way for the Babylonian army and Nebuchadnezzar to invade Egypt. In 568 B.C., God's words came true. It's interesting. Chronologically now, this is the last of Jeremiah's prophecies. We're going to have some judgments on the nations and things to come. But this is the last of his prophecies. And so the question becomes, what happened to this great man of God afterwards? And the answer is, we don't know. There are some theories. Some historians say that he was stoned in Tophanes for speaking out against the idolatry. Other people say that he joined the Jews in Babylon. The scripture is silent. It is a tribute to me, though, to Jeremiah, that the last glimpse we get of him is him doing what he's done his whole life, standing strong for God against the idolatry of his own people. Jeremiah was faithful to the end. Chapter 45. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the instruction of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying. Now this flashes back to the fourth year of Jehoiakim, which was 605 B.C. Baruch, remember, was the prophet Jeremiah's assistant. And all heroes have sidekicks, you know that. The Lone Ranger has Tonto, Batman has Robin, Andy had Barney, Yogi had Boo Boo. I mean, even in the scriptures now, Moses had Joshua, Paul had Silas. And for better or worse, Jeremiah had Baruch. Of course, it's hard being the number two guy. Once famous composer Leonard Bernstein was asked, what's the hardest instrument to play? He answered, second fiddle. 
In addition to being Jeremiah's assistant, we discover in chapter 51 that Baruch had a brother who was a high official in the court of Babylon. And this must have been hard on Baruch. He'd go to the family reunions and everybody would ask, hey, when are you going to get a real job like your brother? Hey, are you still Jeremiah's errand boy? If ever there was a candidate for an inferiority complex, it was this Baruch. Yet in chapter 36, this incident that he talks about here, Baruch thinks he's got a big, his big break. He's getting his big break. For Jeremiah dictates to him a message for the people of Judah. Baruch writes it down. He writes the scroll. It's God's word, no less. And when Jeremiah is prohibited from going into the temple and reading it himself, he gives the job to Baruch. I'm sure Baruch assumed that he was finally moving out of the shadow of the old man. Wow, at last, the lights will be on me. Baruch, the son of Neriah, will get a little recognition finally. This could catapult me into my own ministry, he must have thought. Yet Jeremiah has a word for his ambitious assistant. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, You said, woe is me now, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. Thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I will break down, and what I have planted I will pluck up. That is this whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord, but I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. Notice God's warning. Do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. You see, Baruch was living in tumultuous times. The old order was on its way out. What was built was about to be broken. What was planted was about to be plucked up. I mean, who wants to be great in a city that's about to be destroyed? It it would be like being promoted captain on the Titanic the night before the ship sunk. I mean, it's it's an honor you don't really want. And this is also God's warning for any ambitious folks here tonight. For the world that we live in is on its way out. It's headed down the tubes. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to judge this wicked world. Greatness in the world's eyes may be more of a liability to you than an honor. Shakespeare puts the following words into the mouth of one of his characters. Cromwell, I charge thee, fleeing away ambition. By that sin, the angels fail. We should avoid wrong ambition. I say that because not all ambition is wrong ambition. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul encourages Timothy, if a man desires the position of a bishop, or that is an elder, he desires a good work. There is some good ambition. I mean, wanting to be a leader in the body of Christ is a proper ambition. There's nothing wrong with a person having a godly vision. There's nothing wrong with you desiring to serve the Lord in meaningful ways. But notice the key words that Jeremiah asks. Do you seek great things for yourself? 
As long as your ambition is God's glory, it's a good ambition. We need more of that kind of ambition. But wrong ambition tries to use God to advance oneself and one's own agenda. We need to be honest about our motives. As God told Jeremiah back in chapter 15, verse 9, take out the precious from the vile. In other words, eradicate selfishness and accentuate godliness. Now, chapter 46 starts a new section of the book, but I want to break the ice tonight if I can. He begins, The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the nations. Jeremiah has judgments against ten nations. He may have uttered these prophecies at different times and on different occasions, but here he compiles them together for the writing of this book. And he starts with a judgment against Egypt concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Now, the battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. was one of the most pivotal and important battles in all of human history. It was the Waterloo. It was the Bull Run. It was the Normandy of ancient times. Prior to this time, Egypt had dominated the world for over a thousand years. But eastward, the Babylonians were on the rise. And in 609 B.C., the Egyptian army moved north. As they passed through the valley of Megiddo, there in Israel, they defeated the Judean king, Josiah. In fact, he had acted foolishly. He had sided with the Babylonians. He tried to attack Egypt and was killed in battle. Pharaoh Necho marched his army all the way to the Euphrates River and to the Syrian city of Carchemish. For, year, for four years, from Carchemish, he harassed and attacked the Babylonians. In the spring of 605 B.C., the Babylonians planned a surprise attack against Carchemish and in doing so routed the Egyptian army. The Egyptians withdrew from the region, leaving Judah and Edom and Moab for the Babylonian army to now plunder. Eventually, Babylon marches all the way to Egypt and in 568 B.C. conquers the land of the Nile. But the decisive battle was Carchemish. Now, in verses 1 through 12 here, it addresses the battle of Carchemish. Verse 13 onward talks about the conquest of Egypt in 568 B.C. Verse 3, order the buckler and shield and draw near to battle. Harness the horses and mount up, you horsemen. Stand forth with your helmets, polish the spears, put on the armor. Why have I seen them dismayed and turned back? Their mighty ones are beaten down. They have speedily fled and did not look back, for fear was all around, says the Lord. Do not let the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They will stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. Carchemish sat on its banks. Who is this coming up like a flood, whose waters move like the rivers? Egypt rises up like a flood, and its waters move like the rivers. And he says, I will go up and cover the earth, and I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. Uh, floods and rising waters was a common Hebrew idiom. Throughout the Bible, it's used for an invading army. He says in verse 9, Come up, O horses, enrage, O chariots, 
And let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians and the Libyans who handle the shield and the Lydians who handle and bend the bow. In other words, Egypt is going to need all the help that she can get from her allies. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour, it shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain you will use many medicines, you shall not be cured. History tells us that Egypt was the birthplace of medicine. And yet here, notice the taunt. There is no medicine that is going to heal Egypt's hurt. The nations have heard of your shame, and your cry has filled the land. For the mighty man has stumbled against the mighty. They both have fallen together. Verse 13. The word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet, how Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, will come and strike the land of Egypt, Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdal, proclaim in Noph, which was Memphis. It was the center of Egyptian idolatry. And in Toponis, say, stand fast and prepare yourselves, for the sword devours all around you. Why are your valiant men swept away? They did not stand because the Lord drove them away. Notice Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, has judged Egypt. He made many fall. Yes, one fell upon another, and they said, Arise, let us go back to our own people and to the land of our nativity from the oppressing sword. They cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a noise. He has passed by the appointed time. As we've learned earlier tonight, there were Jews in Egypt at the time of Babylon's conquest. They had fled there in fear of Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, irony of ironies, they walked right into his path. In disobeying God to flee to Egypt, the Jews jumped out of the frying pan, which was Judah, and into the fire, which was Egypt. And the lesson for us, you can never go wrong by obeying the Lord. Verse 18, as I live, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, surely as Tabor is among the mountains and as Carmel by the sea, so he shall come. You know, you can look across the valley of Megiddo. I've been there. I've seen it. And you see one lone mountain, Mount Tabor, rising up from the valley. If you approach Israel from the sea, the coastland is flat except for one mountain range in the north, the mountain range, the Mount Carmel. In their respective landscapes, both mountains are imposing sites. When you see them, it's it's like you're awed. Just as Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army They too will be imposing. They'll be a frightful sight as they ride into Egypt. Verse 19. O you daughter dwelling in Egypt, prepare yourself to go into captivity. For Noph shall be waste and desolate without inhabitant. Egypt is a very pretty heifer. But destruction comes. It comes from the north. Babylon was east of Jerusalem. But the Chaldeans always invaded the southern kingdoms from the north. They would come around the Fertile Crescent. And they would come down from the north. Also, her mercenaries are in her midst like fat bulls, for they also are turned back. They have fled away together. They did not stand, for the day of their calamity had come upon them, the time of their punishment. Egypt sacrificed and worshipped cows. Cows were sacred to the Egyptians. But her idols really 
we're just a bunch of bull. I mean, when the chips were down, they were no help. And, and here Egypt's troops are going to be sacrificed like bulls. Holy cow, they need to run for the hills. I was working on that. Verse 22. Her noise shall go like a serpent, for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes like those who chop wood. You know, the Pharaoh of Egypt, he wore an insignia on his headdress. What was it? It was a snake. It was a serpent. Here we're told that the snake will be chopped up with a battle axe. They shall cut down her forest, says the Lord, though it cannot be searched because they are innumerable and more numerous than grasshoppers. These invaders are like grasshoppers. They're so numerous. The daughter of Egypt shall be ashamed. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I will bring punishment on Ammon of No and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings, Pharaoh and those who trust in him. Ammon was the sun god, which was the chief idol of Egypt. The wicked king Judah, by the way, Manasseh, he named his son Ammon after this idol. That's how corrupt he had become the king of Judah. The Egyptian city of No was actually the ancient city of Thebes. Verse 26. And I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of his servants. Afterward, it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. Egypt will be defeated by the Babylonians, but the conquest will be short-lived. And the Bible actually has a bright forecast for Egypt's future. You can check Isaiah 19, Ezekiel 29. They both seem to indicate that when Jesus returns, Egypt will be restored to its glory. There's a reason for that. Genesis 12 tells us that God blesses those who bless Israel. And ever since the Camp David Accords in 1978, Egypt has been one of Israel's few Arab allies. He finishes, but do not fear, O my servant Jacob, and do not be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be at ease. No one shall make him afraid. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord, for I am with you, and I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you. But I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you. For I will not leave you wholly unpunished. Hey, God will discipline Israel, but he will not destroy her. He loves his people. He'll discipline us. That doesn't mean he's going to let us go. He loves us and cares for us and will be faithful to us to the end. And there we have uh, chapters 42 to 46.